Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to this edition of the Once Bitten podcast and joining me today is crowd favorite Andy Edstrom, the author of the book, Why Buy Bitcoin. Andy was first on the show way back when, 20th of February 2020, and I have been back and checked it, and that was the first show that Lauren ever made an appearance. Andy, big up to you. Thank you so much. I don't know if you remember that first question, but it was, why is Bitcoin so important? I urge the listeners to go back and find that episode with Andy, uh, because it was a real great interview, as always. Andy brings so much to the space, and for that, we should all be eternally grateful. This interview has already aired on the 21ism project. I did this for the 21ism guys, and Andy was the featured writer this month. Make sure you go out and check 21ism.com. That's all spelled out. Brilliant site, brilliant project. You guys are going to love it if you haven't already come, uh, come across it. Uh, before we do this show, I would like to give a shout out to the sponsors, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Go download the app. You guys in the UK, you have been spoiled. They are going to go to 0% fees soon. Start auto buying. Relay, R-E-L-A-I.ch forward slash bitten. That's across Europe. Get out of euros and into Bitcoin. And across the, uh, across the pond, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. They have you covered. Use that forward slash bitten and get a free 10 bucks to start your stacking journey. But then please make sure you are taking control of your keys, not your keys, not your coins. Get them on a hardware wallet. Use shiftcrypto.ch forward slash bitten and get the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only edition. Enjoy this show with Andy. Okay, we are recording and sitting down with Andy Edstrom. This is a recording for the 21ism project. I think we're up to block nine. Andy is the featured writer because his book, Why Buy Bitcoin, is fucking awesome. So, you know, the, that's the reason Andy's made it into the, uh, the realms of the 21ism project and is showcased this month as the writer. So, Andy, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Princey, it's great to see you. I'm really honored to be included uh, among this uh, this hallowed pantheon. Uh, so really appreciate it and uh, really looking forward to talking with you. All right. So before we kick off, and Andy has been grilled now uh, at least two or three times, three times maybe by Lauren. Uh, Big Sister's coming in now to really, you know, amp up like the questions and put Andy on the spot. So we've got Sophia here. Sophia, have you remembered your question? <laughs> um, um, no. <laughs> this seems to run in the family. <laughs> um, We're off to a strong start. That means you can ask whatever you want if you can't remember your question. Uh, I'm writing it down, listeners. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, what is a sharp ratio? What is a sharp ratio? Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? <laughs> 
that is uh, <laughs> that is a serious question. Um, <clears throat> wow. Okay. So this is yeah. We're getting to our uh, hardcore finance uh, roots um, here. Yeah, the Sharpe ratio is basically it's a measure. It's a very simple measure of um, return versus risk. And the idea is that the higher the Sharpe ratio, the more expected return or the more return for your investment you're getting for each unit of risk or piece of risk uh, that you take. And it was invented by this guy, William Sharp, who may have won a Nobel Prize. I can't remember. And it's used all the time in the financial world. You know, fund managers, investment fund managers, hedge fund managers, they love them, some sharp ratios. And um, it is one thing that is looked at. It's also like many other financial uh, indicators or financial measurement tools, uh, very flawed because it makes some assumptions like uh, things like a risk-free rate of return, which is a concept that doesn't really exist. Um, and it also measures risk by talking about standard deviation, which is really volatility. And that's actual, that actually dovetails into Bitcoin because Bitcoin is one of those assets that is extremely volatile in price at least uh, in dollar price or euro price or uh, pound sterling price, depending on how you're measuring it. Uh, but that's a different thing than risk. Um, risk really is the possibility, this is my opinion, and I'm not the only one, it's the possibility of permanent loss of, of value, uh, which is a different thing than volatility. And I think that is one thing that people in Bitcoin sometimes get confused about, so it's a really great question. I'm glad you brought it up. It fits right into Bitcoin, and uh, that was a technical one. By the way, I'm not going to get into the formula. I mean, I'll, we could do that, but uh, <laughs> but I'll probably pass. I'm not sure our listeners really want to get in the weeds there. Can you just roll it off the top of your head at this point? <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to be honest with you. I don't use it. Um, I don't use it that often. I mean, it's yeah. It's basically what it's the expected rate of return of what you're investing in minus the risk-free rate, I think divided by the standard deviation. Um, and, uh, but yeah, no, I don't focus on it that much for the reason I just described, which is volatility is interesting, but not that important. It's a little important. Sometimes it's more important depending on how you're thinking about managing a, an investment portfolio, but I'm not as fussed about it as some people. Do you understand what volatility is, Sophia? Uh, I think so. Well, do you want to take a stab at it or do you just want to fire the question straight at Andy? <laughs> what do you think it is? What does it mean when, when, uh, when an asset, something you invest in, put your money in, is volatile generally? What do, what do people mean? I've heard the term before, but I... I yeah. haven't like understood it. It basically means it's jumping around all over the place. And that's true, not just of prices, but we in Bitcoin land, we usually think in terms of prices. So the idea is that the price of Bitcoin could be, let's say, $10,000 last year and then go to $65,000 uh, earlier this year and now be $40,000, right? So the price went up by six and a half times and then it fell more than half and now it's recovering. That's what we call volatility. And uh, volatility also applies to anything in life. 
maybe uh, I don't know. Maybe you're in France at the moment, but uh, you know the temperature can jump around day to day. When it's hot, uh, that's very different than when it's cold, and that's volatility of temperature. So that's the idea. And it, another way to think about it um, is like uh, perhaps a 13-year-old girl's mood might be volatile. Like four hours ago, you hated my guts and you didn't want to see me and I was annoying you. But now you're sitting next to me and we're having a nice conversation with Andy and you think I'm a pretty cool guy. What? So you went from angry as hell to actually like laughing over my shoulder right now. <laughs> so your mood has been volatile. That wasn't the, I, I was just taking my anger out on you. I was frustrated, <laughs> okay? We all, it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. I have a baby right now. I have a, a baby in the house, and uh, the baby's mood is also volatile. <laughs> One minute she's crying, and the next she's happy and gurgling and smiling. It's very volatile. All right, do you have any more questions, Randy? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, cool. Well, thanks for stepping in. And thanks for yeah. bringing the uh, the big guns in with the sharp ratio question. It's amazing <laughs> how you thought of bringing that one up. Great oh. question, Sophia. Nice to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you too. Um, that was not my question. <laughs> he, um, my dad told me to to ask it. Um, I'm shocked. Shocked. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was great to meet you. Um, I'm gonna go. Cool. Bye. Very good. Have a nice day. <laughs> Have a nice day, you too. Bye. Cheers, Andy. Um, you got it. You're raising a good gaggle over there, Princey. Thank you, mate. Thank you, mate. And they're getting educated by uh, the Bitcoin plebs, which uh, is is great. You know, I, I, I really love it when the, the kids can come in and, and speak to people like yourself and, and anybody else that's been on the show and give up their, um, you know, it started, it started with you. I don't know whether you realize this, but Lauren was, uh, the first person you spoke with. I'm, I'm like 99% sure of that. Uh, and that was only because my goodness, that must've been like show six, seven or eight. And, uh, because you dodged me for a little while, uh, you know, <laughs> I played hard to get, I played a little hard to get. I was like, who's this princey guy? Um, wait, he has a podcast. And uh, yeah, you had, I think you had just started and uh, you like uh, all good, uh, like all successful people uh, hustled a little bit. And uh, you know, I was, I, I mean, it didn't take long to get to know you and realize you were a great dude. And so I'm so glad that I, you know, took the invitation and got to know you and uh, the rest is history. But uh, yeah, man. So I didn't realize that was the first episode that or, uh, with Lauren. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's how it went down because I, I, started disappearing off in the evenings, you know, trying to rush down dinner and I've got a podcast to go and do. It's like, uh, you know, very new in the house. Like, what the hell is he talking about? You know, daddy's going to be a podcaster talking about boring old Bitcoin. Um, Sophia's just brought in my replenished beer. Thank you. Um, well, and the rest is history, my friend, because yours is one of my favorites in the space now. But the, the point I'm trying to make is Lauren asked me that evening whether she could come in and talk to whoever I was talking to on the podcast at that point, and that was you. And because that was such a great um, 
experience for her because we had a lot of fun in those 10 to 15 minutes that she was hanging out with us. She hasn't stopped coming back. I mean, obviously today she's busy, but it was, it was early exposure to Bitcoiners like yourself that gave her the impetus to want to keep coming back and to be part of the show. And it's definitely a self-directed education kind of learning path. It's, it's her impetus that's, that's doing this, but it's being fed by the people that she's speaking with and it's just been great. So, uh, you know, big kudos to you for, for, for making that, that first one so fun. I really appreciate it. Hey man, the pleasure was mine and I am equally grateful to all the Bitcoiners out there that have made this journey uh, so rewarding and so fun. You know, there's so many that have made contributions. We're, we're all we're all learning this thing together and uh, and hopefully having some fun while doing it. So I'm really grateful to everyone out there listening and everyone who's read and listened to and, and seen uh, all the great content that uh, everyone in the space has put together. So I know we're just we're just going to have to keep it up. I know you will. Yeah, 100 percent, mate. And I know you've got another book coming out, right? <laughs> sorry i almost spat out my coffee on that one um yeah no no plans man no plans um i'll tell you what i had the one thing that i had that had crossed my mind was something about the ethics of bitcoin which is kind of a minefield obviously um if i had the time i would do that um however i am working on something which involves writing which I can't announce just yet, unfortunately. But let's just say I'm working on uh, doing something regular for one of the major outlets in the space, and I'll just uh, I'll just leave it at that. That's awesome, mate. And I got a great picture the other day of you hanging out with a fellow Bitcoiner down in um, wherever you are, San Diego, maybe I'm not sure. But I we think it was yeah, I think it was South Bay. I think it was probably Redondo Beach. There was a barbecue. Mike uh, Calise, um put it together it was a blast uh that might have been uh that might have been the one i met i met uh, a bunch of awesome bitcoiners out there i met uh sean culkin the football player who uh you know announced his intent to take his uh his salary in bitcoin um so that was fun um yeah it was a great time well the picture came to me via scott from uh Shamari. uh so oh that, that was a different event oh that wow was the man bit, that was the bit devs la event I was excited to meet Scott and his wife, and I met a bunch of great Bitcoiners there, too. That was local. That was in Venice Beach, uh, California, which is not far from where I live. And yeah, that was a that was a great one. Hats off to the to the bit devs L.A. team, um, you know, e-currency hodler, uh, Andrew Yang, Damian Somerset, um, Steve, I'm trying to remember Steve's handle um, that crew put together an awesome event. Man, and I got my first. I got my first copy of the of the Shamari game, and I'm I'm. I confess I haven't opened it up yet. I got. I think probably tonight I got to sit down with my son and uh, tear it open and uh, play play a little bit, learn a little. Yeah, it's great fun, man. You guys like it must be so nice to be surrounded by Bitcoiners. Uh, and I, I I don't know. Did you get across to Miami? Was that was that uh, a trip you made? In the I end? did not. I did not get to Miami for various reasons i had about four or five personal reasons um that caused me to not make it out there uh i gave away my ticket that was actually kind of fun i gave away my uh ticket to uh to a total noob 
um, whose handle I can't remember at the moment. I should look that up. But uh, yeah, so I, I gave my ticket away. I missed it. But um, I was really sad when they relocated. You know, they were supposed to be in L.A., yeah. right? The original <laughs> venue was, was like a few miles from my house. So I was like, great. This is going to be awesome. In 2019, in San, which was up in San Francisco, was such a blast. And I met so many uh, people in the space um, who were, you know, many of them hardly known back then and have, you know, since become uh, really popular. So a lot of awesome people. But no, I'm, I'm sad to say I missed Miami. Maybe next year. Yeah, but at least you got the outlet, right? You can go down to the beach once or twice a month, meet some great Bitcoiners, hang out, talk, uh, talk shop. It's uh, it, it must be so cool. Uh, I've, I've, we, we it's just... really, yeah. I'm sorry to catch you off. It's really, it's become more important to me. Like I earlier in my journey, you know, like when I was writing the book and stuff, I was just like kind of heads down, blinders on, and of course I was listening to a bunch of podcasts and reading, obviously. But I wasn't really doing much, you know, locally. And so I really tried to, yeah, I've tried to be more active. You know, I've, I've organized a few meetups at my place and um, a couple of barbecues. And I think that's that's a part that was missing for me. I think it's actually something you and I talked about in a prior conversation. Um, it's such an important part of the of the whole experience is the is the community aspect. And I was, you know, sort of delinquent on that front. And I, I've been working to to remedy that. And it's been a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, good for you, mate. All right. Well, let's let's get to the uh, let's get to the the meat of the conversation, the interview. And uh, what what 21 ism like to do is in, invite people on and try and get behind the man who we see now. Uh, or the woman, depending on who we are uh, interviewing, of course. So life-changing events or events that uh, may have occurred during your childhood, whether that was falling on hard times, watching your parents go through certain things, something throughout our life has probably predisposed us somehow to finding Bitcoin or has suddenly just helped us snap all of the uh, the pieces of the puzzle together. Where, where were you growing up? What, what was life like for you growing up as, as young Andy before, you know, you, you wanted to, you got the big bright eyes and you wanted to go off to Wall Street and we'll do all that story because that's always fun. But where, you know, kind of like talk us through where you were growing up at the point of, um, you know, like primary school and, and what was your, what was your father doing and, and how was that kind of shaping you and your mom, of course? Wow. Okay, we're going uh, going back to the beginning. Yeah. Uh, turn it on the way back machine, as we like to say. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So look, I was very fortunate. I had a happy childhood. You know, I had two good parents. I grew up in uh, in the Los Angeles area, uh, Pasadena area, which is you know not that far from where I am right now. I mean, it's I don't know twenty miles away, and. Um, you know, I was kind of a shy kid, kind of a quiet kid. Um, I was young in my class, um, not much of an athlete. I was small, young and small. So I did get pushed around a little. Um, <clears throat> but I was, you know, I was a bit of a bookworm, um, you know, a bit of a nerd. Shocking, I know. Shocking. And uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, mom was a mom was a lawyer. She did real estate law, <clears throat> although she ended up retiring when I was in high school. And dad was a wealth manager. He was a financial advisor for as long as I could remember. So I did get some early lessons in basic finance, financial concepts, 
you know, budgeting, uh, very basics about thinking about investing in the stock market. On the other hand, you know, it's not like he laid it on thick or really, you know, jammed it down my throat. It was, you know, he, he sort of, I think he responded to my interest level at the appropriate time, but he didn't, um, yeah, it's not like it was all finance, uh, you know, all the time or, uh, or anything like that. But, uh, you know, basically I had a good upbringing in sunny Southern California. You know, I didn't face too much adversity as a kid. My parents were sort of middle class growing up and then my dad, you know, became more professionally successful. So, you know, I would say we did become more wealthy over time, although not <laughs> definitely not fabulously wealthy by any, you know, by any stretch. Um, and yeah, I guess the, I guess the, you know, the childhood challenge for me was just kind of breaking out of my shell. Um, you know, I was a shy kid and just becoming more, um, you know, more social and interactive. And um, that's actually always been a challenge for me, believe it or not. I mean, it was a little bit of a personal challenge to get on, you know, shows like yours to basically, you know, put my face out there, um, muster the courage, you know, to talk into a microphone uh, in a conversation that might be recorded and broadcasted. Um, so anyway, that's, you know, those are some thoughts that that's what comes, uh, comes to mind for me. Shy guys don't end up on Wall Street. So something, something <laughs> happened. Like, I mean, come on, you don't, you, you know, this, especially when you entered Wall Street, right? That was, um, they, they were tough times in themselves. If I remember rightly, I think we've, I like your, in, what, what year did you, did you get onto Wall Street? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right about that. So I graduated in 2003 from college, which meant I was getting a job right in 2002. And that was the aftermath of the dot-com bubble, the internet bubble uh, bursting, right? The meltdown. And that was lean times on Wall Street. And Wall Street is as cyclical a business as there is, really. So it goes from feast to famine, and by the way, we've seen that cycle at least a couple of times since that event, as you know. And yeah, <clears throat> I think in my class, my, I recall my graduating class was small. It was about 550 kids out of college. And I think there were five of us that got Wall Street jobs. So it was competitive. There weren't a lot of jobs to go around. And yeah, I mean, it was kind of a roll of the dice, um, <laughs> not least because I didn't have any you know, personal connections. I remember one of my classmates, uh, his dad was CEO of a Fortune 50 company, maybe Fortune 100, big company that spent lots of fees around on Wall Street, uh, you know, on the on the M&A bankers and on the financing bankers. You know, so there were there were a couple folks in my class that were, you know, basically guaranteed jobs. I was not one of those connected guys. You're right that I did hustle a little bit earlier to get an internship. I remember uh, my, I can't remember, my freshman year or sophomore year, there was a small regional investment bank that came to campus and I had found out about it late and I was underage. This was like an event for, you know, this was an event for basically seniors. And I think I was two years younger and I just, you know, I went up and talked to the guy and somehow carried on a conversation and I was, and he was like, you know, what do you got going on or something? And I was like, oh, well, I'll tell you. And I remember the, that night, 
I knew that he had told me the hotel he was staying at. So I remember that night throwing together a resume, you know, printing it out, hopping on my bicycle and uh, schlepping over to the hotel, which was, I don't know, five miles away from campus or something. I think I slid. I can't remember if I like I, I suppose I didn't slide it under his door. I must have left it at the at the front uh, front counter. Um, by the way, this was before there was as much going on with internet and email, um, not to say that that wasn't necessarily an option, but I did it in part, you know, to make an impression, right? Physical copy, uh, physical copy resume. I think I put a cover letter on it too. And so that was one thing I did that was a little more, uh, a little more hustly that got me my first internship, which was, I think a year prior, it was actually two years prior. And um, this is actually a, uh, an interesting, well, I don't know, interesting to me to talk about formative experience. So they gave me a, a summer job offer, I think my sophomore year, but it didn't, it paid like, it paid like a thousand bucks a month or something. <laughs> now, granted, this is whatever, over 20 years ago. So there's been some inflation, but I don't know. So maybe think of like two grand a month and it was, you know, 10 weeks or something. So I was going to make like five grand for the summer. And I was really grateful to the guy because he had, you know, he had uh, responded and um, I don't know, I had interviewed or something and somehow I'd gotten a, a job offer and I just had to tell him like, dude, I have to make more than five grand this summer because, right, because although I didn't have to pay for school, my entire, you know, personal budget beyond that was all on me. So for me, summer and I was an athlete in, in school also. So I didn't have a lot of time to, to work. I did some work in college. You know, I did some, some work in the, in the economics department, grading homework and stuff. We could talk about that. Um, Keynesian economics, but, um, <clears throat> but yeah, so I had to turn down this job, which was actually, um, it was really pretty disappointing for me because I had hustled to get this summer job early, which was, I was hoping, you know, going to put me on a, on a better track for later. They wouldn't pay me enough. So I was my my planned job was managing a summer camp, which, you know, surprisingly paid at least double, right? What the what the investment banking job was the internship was gonna pay me. And so I ended up doing that that summer. And I, you know, was extra nice to the guy and was like, Hey, you know, think of me next year. And as it turned out, the following year I ended up uh, I ended up working at that at that firm. That was a firm called Barrington Associates, which was since um I mean, it's defunct now. I think it merged with the uh, can't remember it was Wells Fargo or or someone else. But uh, but that was uh, yeah, that was that was how I got my first job in finance, and then turned it down because they wouldn't pay me enough, <laughs> and I wouldn't have enough you know beer money, you know beer money, etc. You know, walking around money for the for the next year uh, on campus, and then I finally took the job, and then yeah, ultimately having that job did help me you know, get the, the full-time job on, uh, on wall street, man. All right. There's a lot there, Andy. There is a lot there. First of all, yeah. You know, you, you describe yourself as a shy kind of guy, but then you, you, you pulling that hack out of nowhere, like, uh, typing out the resume, typing out the cover letter, jumping on your bike. This is classic, classic hustling that, uh, gets people places, right? Where if you put yourself just outside of the norm, just like one, one percent outside the norm you start standing out to people and just by virtue of slipping a manila envelope across a, a reception desk and somebody having that that tangible pit is like that person knows straight away 
you've gone to effort one to type it out then two to actually get it there that's huge and there's so many great stories of, of other people that have, have done these these kind of things um well princey you i know you know hustle first of all because you know the of the work you did on uh, you know on the desk back in the day but i also know you know how to hustle because you uh you hustled me into our uh you know into our first podcast episode man you uh you uh you pursued me and uh you said uh, very nice things uh, about me and my work and uh i'm sure you meant them all but i also am sure that uh let's put it this way other i've been approached by other podcasters and they don't have the same hustle and as a result you know it's less likely that uh I haven't done every new podcast. Let's put it that way. I probably should do more, but I but I haven't done all of them. Yeah, they could take a lesson. They could take a lesson from Princey, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Your book was very, very. I read it at a, a perfect time, and it was so. I don't know how many I'd read at that point. I'm just trying to think back. Not many, because as you know, there's been a flood of books into the market, and you you wrote a Bitcoin book at the exact wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no look i'm sure you had read bitcoin standard by then mm -hmm. i had made a point of reading every bitcoin book prior to publication okay what ones can you name probably Andre yeah, so, andreas's books yep i read yeah. uh, i read uh, mastering bitcoin by andreas i you know i think jan pritzker's book inventing bitcoin came out after mine was done, but prior to publication, I think mm -hmm. this came out like a month or something before I put mine out. Obviously, Bitcoin Standard, which I cited in my book, you know, very important in the space, clearly. Um, I had read Callie Rosenbaum's book, Grokking Bitcoin. That one is much more technical. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons I read that book is I was most of the way finished writing mine. And I had decided it was important to include a technical section in my book to get the basics of how does a hash function work? How does ECDSA work? How is a block constructed, you know, in terms of the proof of work, the nonce, you know, the Merkle tree such that uh, it's hard to make, but very easy to verify. You know, what I wanted to give readers just enough to get that aha moment of, oh, the way this thing is constructed is brilliant. Yes, it allows for difficult competitive block construction, but easy verification, you know, and kind of get the wheels turning. Because that was a real, um, that was a real, I don't want to say struggle for me, but I just, I, I probably said this before, but probably my first like 10 hours of researching Bitcoin, you know, I, I got to the point where it was like all surface level stuff. I was reading articles and I was like, just, I finally just said, tell me how the damn thing works. And I found an article on TechCrunch that finally had just explained, you know, the very basics of block construction. And I had the light bulb moment at that time. I wish I were smart enough to have the light bulb moment just from reading the white paper, right? Because, <laughs> but of course, by that point, I had read the white paper and it hadn't stuck. But um, yeah, but anyway, so so I read Callie Rosenbaum's book, um, primarily because I wanted to see that I hadn't made any errors <laughs> in my in my description. I was like, I'll read Callie's book. I'll get through it. I'll make sure, you know, that I understand most of that. And if I find anything there that, that doesn't jive with what I've written, you know, then I'll then I'll worry. 
Um, and that, you know, that worked out, by the way, all the books I'm mentioning are, are fantastic. You know, Kelly's got the, you know, the best uh, technical description of, of Bitcoin. But, um, you know, I had read I had read the more biographical ones. There was um, Digital Gold was uh, Nathaniel Popper. Right. And uh, there's another one, How Money Got Free. Um, Brian Patrick, I think it's Aha, E-H-A. I can't pronounce his name. Um, yeah, I know I'm forgetting some. I don't keep them all in one, in one. I really should keep a Bitcoin bookshelf. I should put it right there on that on that desk yeah. behind me. I should just line them up. But um, but yeah, those are those are some of the ones that came to mind. But but there's been some great ones that have you know that have come out since, and I've I've read a couple of them. I I'm kind of behind. I haven't I haven't read all of them. But um, you know, I'm just lucky to be here. Basically, so much great content. It's a struggle keeping up with them, mate. And you know that that's that. <laughs> when I started the podcast, it's like oh, right, okay. I want to get uh, Andy on, obviously safe on, and then all of a sudden, bam, where, where did this one come from? Jan, then Knut, then uh, then they all just started like, wow, my God, I can't keep up with these. So was your book around the same time as Knut's first book, Sovereignty? Yes, yes. Right. And I want to give Knut credit <clears throat> one for one thing specifically. So I read his first one, which was great at that time, right? And I remember if I read it after mine had gone out or about the same time, it was around the same time. And I heard him on a podcast and this was probably November. It was probably November, 2019. And he was talking about his book and I was like, that's great. And he has a great book. And why am I not talking about my book on podcasts? <laughs> so Knut sort of gave me uh, the inspiration to start shilling why buy Bitcoin because I hadn't been doing so. I hadn't been tweeting. I hadn't been using Twitter. Um, you know, and so, uh, yeah, so that was like the inspiration. I was like, you know, I really should figure out a way to reach out to some of these guys, you know, engage, engage with the, with the podcast universe and, uh, credit to heavily armed clown in the Bitcoin echo chamber podcast. Um, he, you know, I can't remember if I reached out to him or he reached out to me in December of 2019 or yeah, I think that's what it was. And uh, that was uh, that was my first pod, and I'm I'm ever grateful to him for uh, you know engaging in the, in the first pod conversation with me. That's weird. That's how I found you in the first place. I was talking to Ben Prentice, Colin's mm. partner with WTF, because I'd been in a pub in London when we were still allowed to travel, and uh, I met up with a guy just randomly on Twitter, like who who likes Bitcoin? Who's in London? Let's go. My, my daughter thought, like, what are you doing meeting randoms? Like, like, I just need someone to talk to about Bitcoin. And he told me about WTF happened in 1971. So I just got straight home. I was looking at it. It blew my mind. I'm like, how did I not find this yet? And uh, figured out who, who had done it and just DM'd Ben. And before you knew it, we were on a, a Zoom call and just like shooting the shit. He said, you've got to listen to Andy Edstrom on uh, the, the Bitcoin Echo Chamber podcast with my friend Colin. That's when I listened to you. That's when I found the book. And then the book, you know, it speaks to me because you wrote it from a uh, financial background. Uh, you know, you were on Wall Street. I worked in foreign exchange. And so that, that just closed the loop. And it's just amazing how all of these peer-to-peer -peer networks, they just all come together. And um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Canute. Um, your surname, Edstrom, is is Swedish. Yes, there you go. And I've had several conversations uh, with Canute. He is 
you know, much more Swedish uh, than I am, you know, <laughs> yeah. actually living there, being born there. I actually, oh, I did uh, forget to mention this. You had asked about my upbringing. Mm -hmm. um, this is where and, I was uh, taking you. <laughs> I meant to say, by the way, uh, hats off to Ben Prentice as well. I love the, you know, he's a great dude. and I love the work he does uh, as well. Now he works with, uh, now he works with Peter. Yeah. Um, anyway, yeah, so. I had the good fortune, I guess, of growing up for a time with uh, Swedish au pairs because both my parents were working. And so, yes, I had uh, I had uh, the benefit of child care um, before I could appreciate it, really, <laughs> before I was an age at which I could appreciate it, which is probably better <laughs> for everyone, to be honest. Uh, and uh, yeah, so so they taught me some Swedish and I had some comics. There was one called, I think it was Bamse, B-A-M-S-E, which is this bear. He's basically a, you know, he's a comic uh, version of a bear. Um, I remember Pippi Longstocking, of course. And uh, yeah, so, so, so I did have some Swedish and I, and, and my family made a, I don't know, like a three or four week trip to Sweden when I was, I think six years old. And I got to experience midsummer in Sweden, you know, and like, uh, you know, the the midsummer festival and running around the the pole, you know, with the ribbons. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm sure there's a I'm sure there's a term for it that I'm missing. Maypole you know, dancing and, and, in the UK. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and uh, exactly. And, and staying out, you know, playing hide and seek in the garden in the in the sunlight till, you know, 11 o'clock at night. And um, so pretty fun stuff. So yeah, my Swedish heritage, it's three quarters, three quarters by, by heritage Swedish. And Edstrom is a Swedish name. And I wish I still had some Swedish language in me. It may be buried, you know, some, somewhere deep in, uh, deep in my brain. But um, yeah, that's my, uh, that's the Swedish part of my, of my experience. Is this Nanny and Grandad or a few more generations removed? Whoa. Yeah, no, this is, this is actually, okay. So it's yeah when did they come over hmm. it was uh it was great grandparents on one side and i can't remember if it was great great grandparents on the other what was interesting is that it was several generations ago and yet i'm still you know three quarters by heritage you know yes. how does that happen how does that happen and of course the answer is swedes moved from sweden to small towns in Minnesota <laughs> and they stick together. Uh, many of them were farmers because um, the farming, you know, was crap in Sweden. Uh, obviously it sort of cycled, although it's arguably, you know, sort of a similar story to, you know, Irish farmers, right. You know, coming out of, coming out of places where the farming just ain't that great. Uh, and so, you know, they stick together and intermarry and, um, yeah, so so that's for me. It was at least three generations ago, and in fact, it was long ago, long ago enough that I sort of scratch my head and have to remember whether it was three or four. All right, so I got to take you back to what you were talking about when you were at um, university, because you brought up two things there that I want to delve into. You told us that growing up, you were uh, youngest in the class, not much of. Um, an athlete, but then you dropped the bomb that university, you're an athlete. So 
what what, what happened yeah what what happened and what what kind of athlete like chess champion what what was going on <laughs> yeah that's right yeah that's right uh, fortnite uh, fortnite <laughs> champion um yeah so i was somewhat of an athlete and i was you know i was an endurance athlete to some degree like i did cross country for a little bit although i got horrendous shin splints um I don't know if everyone knows what that is, but it's uh it's really a painful uh it's a painful thing. It's basically when you know impact from running causes the muscles to stretch off of your you know legs in uncomfortable ways. But I was a soccer player, and I was a decent soccer player, and we had a good team. Um, I was not good enough at soccer to compete at the collegiate level. Our team at college, that was Williams College, our soccer team was really very good. Um it drew uh it drew from all over the country it drew some international too we had some crazy good jamaican soccer players on the williams college team um these guys were insanely good anyway i walked on to the crew so my you know sort of endurance uh training background caused me to uh to start rowing which is a brutal sport it's one of the few that you can walk on to you know, basically because there aren't that many people that do it in high school, um, probably because it's expensive, right? You got all this equipment, you got boats, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly like New England prep schools, you know, that, that even have the sport. But um, <clears throat> I was just crazy enough and, and tenacious enough to walk on to the crew. And uh, yeah, I was by far, uh, I'm sure you may know that, that by, uh, for the most part, by reputation, rowers are tall. And the reason is, you know, the longer your reach and the longer your sweep, the more you, the longer you can keep that oar in the water and basically transmit the power of your body to moving the boat in a race. And uh, I was literally a head shorter than almost everyone on the crew. So, yeah, the crew are mostly, you know, over six foot guys. And uh, I was, you know, five, I'm five nine on a very, very good day, on a very tall day. And uh, so, yeah, I, I walked on and became by far the shortest member of the Williams College crew. And I, you know, sort of had to make up for it in uh, in hustle and, and hard work. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got to compare you. I was, like, I was a little bit like the Rudy. If people know about Rudy, you know, the football player. I wasn't probably quite as tenacious as Rudy, but uh, similar story, right? Undersized guy deciding he's going to compete in a physical sport involving uh, significantly larger men. I thought you were going to say you walked on as the Coxswain or something. You know, the, the little dude yeah. that you... <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So the coxswain needs to be tiny because he's dead weight, at least as far as, you know, propelling the boat. By the way, that's not to say the coxswains aren't important. A good coxswain is, is huge, is really important. Um, hugely important, not huge physically. They, you want them to be tiny. Um, and no, I wasn't quite small enough to be a coxswain because I am, I'm not built that small. You know, I do have wide enough shoulders and enough muscle on my frame that even if I were to really cut weight and starve myself, I don't think I could be, could have been a coxswain. I was a tweener. I was just the wrong size for crew, you know, too small really to, to be a, a proper size, uh, rower and, uh, too large to be a coxswain. Mate, but did, was this was this scholarship stuff? Did this um, was this kind of no, like it? no? I just wanted to, I just wanted to compete, man. Um, oh, I love it. Yeah, I just wanted to compete and stay in shape. And uh, my God, that you know that 
that part uh, worked out. There was lots of tough competition and I was in pretty insane shape. And, um, you know, the downside of it is that I ended up with, uh, you know, persistent back problems. Um, so, you know, that, that's, I'm sure the story of, of many, uh, college athlete, uh, you, you know, you, um, give it your all and you train hard and sometimes you get injured and sometimes those injuries injuries stick with you. So that was the, uh, that was the bummer of it. But, um, but I did meet my wife, uh, at a, uh, at a, at a crew party. So there was perk, th there was a plus. And she's uh, from Swedish heritage as well or not. <laughs> she is not. She is not. <laughs> so the three quarters, the three quarters Swedish, uh, you know, Swedish purity dies with my generation. But uh, yeah, she, she does have a little bit of Swedish. She's, you know, she's more general European. Um, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. So I guess, uh, I guess I'm going down to the kids are, I guess, it wouldn't be three eighths. They're going to be higher than three eighths, but they're probably under fifty percent. Unfortunately, you know what it is? It's a fifty-one percent attack on my it, Swedish heritage. It's debasement. <laughs> it is debasement. <laughs> so I'm thinking now. I'm going to have to chat with Corey about this to see if we can get a Swan crew together to go up against the Winklevi. I'll tell you what, Corey is built like a rower. <laughs> Corey is a you know is a tall dude. Um, he, uh, tall, strong guy. He, he, uh, he fits the profile All right. for sure much more than I do. You heard it here first listeners. That's a, that's a 21 ism first. We've got Corey and Andy rowing against the Winklevoss Swan versus Gemini. Here come Corey. Here come Corey with <laughs> <Yeah>. his oar. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing you mentioned, mate, was economics department marking other people's Keynesian economic work or something that what, what yeah, was yeah. this what was what was this little twist yeah look so i was you know i was a good student um i majored in in keynesian nonsense neoclassical economics i didn't know it at the time that it was nonsense um and so uh you know they had i don't know my second year they asked me to be a teaching assistant in the department which was you know not an unusual thing good students would basically be asked you know hey do you want to participate do you want to do you want a job right they paid <laughs> it didn't pay much it paid really pitifully little i it might have been like minimum wage it was i don't think it was even 10 bucks an hour um and do you want to you know basically grade papers and help out help out the professor with the with the shitty work right i mean really and and grade you know grading homework you know exams and stuff is totally tedious i mean that's like um that's got to be one of the worst jobs involved with uh, uh or functions involved with teaching and, and academia so yeah so i did that and um yeah you know i guess i was probably a junior you know so that's year three of four and i was grading you know sophomore or freshman um homework assignments i would also do office hours which was interesting it was like you know for the problem set or the homework set for the week you know i'd have an hour or two or you know the students could come you know get help basically with um with the homework um it actually kept me sharp i mean it's sort of like mixed mixed feelings right it's like as they say you don't really learn something until you teach it or write about it um which i've taken to heart obviously with bitcoin but but it did yeah, I mean, it did raise my game. It kept me on my toes uh, with respect to, 
some of the material. And some of that material was legit. Like, it's sort of like our, our former friend uh, and now enemy, uh, Nassim Taleb, says, I think, which is, you know, microeconomics is actually kind of real. Like, there's some substance to it, right? And, and macro is much more hand-wavy and BSE. Um, so I actually got something out of, out of, you know, being a teaching assistant on the, on the microeconomics stuff. But yeah, that was, that was my sort of part, very part-time job. I don't know, five hours a week or something made, made a little money. Um, you know, got to participate in the economics department, you know, a little bit of a, of a resume, you know, addition, um, type of thing. And then if we fast forward a little bit, you walking onto the trading floor, finally uh, in Wall Street, being that um, you said like one percent or so of your of your graduating class managed to find a job. That that's nuts, mate. I mean, yeah, it was it was kind of nuts, and the reason I mean, statistically, it wasn't nuts if you look across America, but. I went to a relatively competitive college. And so usually Wall Street was there in force. You know, usually they were hiring more than 10 per year, right? So figure that hiring was down by half or more. And yeah, it was, and it was same in, you know, consulting, you know, the jobs, very few jobs. It was all, it was all very competitive. And um, so look, I count myself very lucky to have gotten a job. And it was it was in the investment banking side. Um, I don't know if I could have made it on the tr on the trading floor, Princey. I don't know if I had uh, I don't know if I had the the right stuff in me uh, to survive in the, in that kind of environment. You're a I think you're a harder man than I in uh, in several ways. Uh, that's a that's sort of a that's a more toxic environment. At least it's toxic in different ways. Investment banking is also toxic in certain ways, but. Um, but yes, I did manage to finagle one of the very few jobs, and I was so relieved about it, partly because that old, that firm that I mentioned earlier that had given me a summer job, an internship, you know, they were sort of a regional firm, and I really wanted to get the sort of, you know, big city New York uh, experience, because everyone had told me that, like, look, you know, earlier in your career, you got to get to the to the nerve center, right? I'm sure it's the same in, in England, right? It's like, if you're going to work in finance, where are you going to go? Well, you're going to go to London. <laughs> uh, it's actually probably more pronounced in London because- Yeah, there's nowhere else. London, there's nowhere else. No. I mean, London is the financial center of the country and the continent. I mean, yeah. So similar story for me. And yeah, I just, uh, you know, I somehow I finagled that job and- um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was a tough time to get hired. What, what what can I say? Do you remember your first week? Like, what were you put on to do? What what were your chores or kind of um, raison d'être that that first yeah. week? You, you know, you, yeah, you yeah. walk in, so you, you've got the you've got the PhD or what doctor's master's in your case degree, whatever it was, and you're right. I'm ready. I'm bright eyed, bushy tailed. What am I to do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Masters or PhD as if I was just a college grad, undergraduate, and I didn't know shit. <laughs> I mean, you know, yes, I had an economics degree. Okay. But most of that is so abstract, almost no practical application. Um, yeah. I, and in fact, 
I actually was competing with, I had a couple of classmates who did have real preparation, real training. I remember two in the, in the analyst class at Rothschild, um, where I first worked, I think there were five of us and two of them had graduated from Wharton. Wharton is this extremely competitive finance focused, uh, undergraduate program at university of Pennsylvania. And those guys actually learned finance. Uh, so those guys came in much more prepared than I was. I was, you know, basically a liberal arts, you know, grad. <laughs> um, I knew how to, I kind of knew how to write, uh, I, I knew how to do math, but I didn't really know how to use a spreadsheet. I mean, I knew a little bit about how to use a spreadsheet. So yeah, straight into the deep end, you know, build financial models, which means first learning how to do that, which is a steep learning curve. Let me tell you, especially if you don't have an accounting background, if you don't have any accounting, uh, you know, learning, learning how to basically construct a dynamic financial model involving an income statement and a cash flow statement and a balance sheet is not so easy. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you know, just working all hours, you know, putting out PowerPoint presentations, um, you know, it was basically power being a PowerPoint monkey and some financial modeling. Uh, yeah. And, um, it, it was a mixed bag of the lowest level stuff they could give you that you wouldn't screw up as you're trying to learn how things work you know, get your, get the lay of the land in terms of who's working on what, what are the deals, what are the transactions, you know, what are the basic financial concepts. And then I remember they, so they, they basically threw us into the deep end for a month, but then they, or let me, I have to get, see if I get this right. Then they started training us. So I think it was like, it was like six weeks of training, maybe after like a week or two, I think it was a week or two just to like, basically scare the crap out of us <laughs> to be like, Hey, this is what you're going to face. And if you don't, you know, if you don't learn your stuff, you don't, you know, do well in the, in the training, uh, you're going to be in trouble. So that was six weeks of training. We did get one and then we went back on the job for a few weeks and then we got one, uh, bonus basically, which was this boondoggle. They actually flew us to London and I'm trying to remember the neighbor, the neighborhood, um, uh, the famous, was it St. Paul's or St. I can't remember famous famous church put us in these nice flats like a couple a uh, couple blocks um, from there in that neighborhood which is a great spot and um, did more training over there hung out with our European and uh, London based uh, counterparties you know went out a lot at night that was fun and then you know then back to New York and then the grind really started. What were you putting in these powerpoints? What was the reason for them? Why did Oh, some of it, the, the first stuff was really like inane stuff. It was like, you know, senior banker has an, has an idea for, you know, the CEO or, or the corporate development uh, head at some public company. And the idea is 10 different companies you should consider buying, right? Because, you know, because how do, get, how do bankers get paid? They get paid when there's a deal. So merger deals, they want to do merger deals. You know, hey, hey, CEO that I know. Uh, you should think about buying A, B, C, D, E, F, G, <laughs> H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P companies. And so one of the things we they would do is they would just have us put together, you know, basic summary information, you know, like profiles of these companies. So it'd be like a PowerPoint page or two about, you know, smaller companies that they could afford to acquire. Some of them were relatively unknown. Some of them were known. So you'd kind of have to, 
you kind of have to fish around. You'd have to like go look on websites. I mean, obviously, if there were public financial filings, you know, you use those, but you have to go look on websites. Um, oh, how could I forget comps? Okay, trading comps and transaction comps. Nobody, by the way, listening to this wants to hear about this crap. I mean, this stuff is so mundane. This stuff is all automated for the most part now, but basically to figure out where the universe of companies in some industry is trading. Let's say, for example, you wanted to look at the Bitcoin mining industry and say, oh, you know, what multiple of earnings or cash flow or book value does this sector, this industry trade at? Well, some young analyst has to go and read all the financial filings, read the 10Ks, read the 10Qs, figure out, you know, literally, literally in a spreadsheet layout, okay, you know, the last 12 months worth of revenue and costs and and therefore uh, earnings and cash flow, you know, what's the latest, you know, balance sheet numbers and therefore how, what's the value of the enterprise relative to, you know, various metrics, profitability, all that stuff, man, it's, it's, it's by hand reading filings and um, reading filings, printing them out, by the way, printing them out, highlighting them, tabbing them like with the, you know, little post-it stickies. Um, and that because everything you did had to be checked by someone else because, you know, there were so many numbers going into these into these spreadsheets that chances are you'd, you'd missed one of them. And some of them were subject to, um, you know, to interpretate interpretation or judgment. Right. What's what's Wall Street's favorite thing to do? Adjust, you know, adjust out one time expenses. Right. Um, so there was, you know, there was some monkeying around with uh, with that sort of thing. God, I haven't thought about this stuff in a long time, Princey. Um, this is, uh, yeah, this is this is what I would spend my nights and weekends doing, you know, for God knows how many hours per week. Um, and then, in addition, of course, you know, working on actual live deals, which was selling a company, which is everything, you know, everything from putting together the marketing materials to building the financial model to meeting with prospective buyers, you know, doing like. I'll never forget, you know, selling this company in Switzerland, trying to sell this company in Switzerland. I basically lived in the in this was not so bad, by the way. I lived in the in the Marriott Hotel in Zurich for like three weeks, you know, and just and just took potential buyers on this tour of this Swiss pharmaceutical company. Um, that was one of the better assignments. That got me some uh, some uh, some some decent meals and some Swiss chocolate and some travel uh, on the continent. But uh, yeah, th those were the fun. That was the fun, the fun parts. But it was also mundane because you know you're doing the same tour fifteen different times, right? <laughs> um, literally, you know, getting on the you know on the bus, whatever, going to facility A, facility B, you know, showing them around. You hear the same spiel, the same pitch from the management team talking about how the company's great and. Blah blah blah, and uh, you know, yeah, answering the same questions. It was, uh, it was pretty mundane and repetitive, uh, to be honest. A lot of it. And this is what I think. This under the hood stuff isn't talked about enough, right? Because people they they think like Wall Street in in you know uh, air quotes is all glamour and all brilliant and. You know, this is the the ultimate place that you want to go and build your career. We've all seen the films, The Wolf of Wall Street, uh, Wall Street itself, and whatever else. And you think it's all just fast paced action, fun. But you're here to spin another story. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Yeah, you know, look, that was the world that I saw 
20 years ago, right? Literally 20 years ago. When I got that first internship, it was probably 2001, okay? So 20 years on the mark. 20 years ago in July, which is where we, you know, we're in mm-hmm. July right now, I was sitting, I think, in, in the offices of, of Barrington and Associates for my first, you know, finance summer job. And at that time, yeah, that was the golden ticket, right? Um, certainly the world has, I, I have to believe the world has changed 20 years later, right? After the global financial crisis, number one. Number two, after the rise of big technology. And I had this conversation with people all the time. You know, what you described is exactly right. And yet the irony was that was the peak. In other words, <laughs> that was the that was peak Wall Street. Was it wasn't quite the early 2000s, it was like the mid 2000s. It was that sweet spot between um, between the, the bursting of the tech bubble in the early 2000s and the global financial uh, crisis in, um, you know, 2008. And I remember, because I, so that job I described, you know, I was there for a year and then I got hired out of there to, to Goldman, which was a, you know, bigger and better uh, known firm. And that, that was, you know, Goldman bankers were making hay in that period. But it really was, I would say, the twilight I don't want to say the twilight of the industry, but it was it was the peak of the industry. I mean, that's when the statistics about I'm trying to remember the statistics. It was something like 30 percent of GDP. I don't remember if it's 30 percent of GDP or 30 percent of market value was finance companies. Right. It was banks for the most part. And that was crazy. That was overgrown. That was nuts. And that was a peak. Had young Andy. Uh, known better or been able to see the future 20 years ago, he probably would have gone into tech, right? Um, and uh, so so that was the right move looking back at the time. But at that time, yeah, finance, you know, finance was the thing. And one of the reasons that I'm so excited about Bitcoin is Bitcoin is full circle, the intersection, right? It's tech finally eating finance, you know, 20 years into my career. And um, that's just so huge. That's so major. Before we get to Bitcoin, there's the Goldman Sachs story. Do you remember the day that Headhunter called you? Um, I don't remember the day. I remember his face <laughs> because I met with him. I don't remember his name. He had an unusual name. I had an unusual name, but I don't I don't remember what it was. Um, and but yeah, I mean, obviously, that was a big, you know, that was a big thing to get that call for me. Um, Goldman had only hired one person out of college for my class, and it happened to be the person <laughs> who had serious family connections. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I was I was pretty stoked about that opportunity. I will say that it was, I had mixed feelings about it and I got mixed advice. I mean, because <clears throat> I talked to people about it. I do remember one conversation I had <clears throat> around the office. So one thing you didn't do or what was clearly frowned upon was jumping ship, you know, mid midway through your analyst program. So the idea was analysts get hired into investment banking out of college for two or three years. Okay. And then they either advance at the firm they get promoted 
or they go to business school. Well, or they go work at a hedge fund or a private equity fund for a couple of years and then go to business school. So that was the usual track. So if you left after a year, <clears throat> you know, you're a, I don't know, you're a turncoat, you know, you're a mercenary, you're a quitter. Supremely ironic, by the way, because Wall Street is basically all mercenaries. So it's yes. like, okay, <laughs> a little bit pot, you know, calling the kettle black here. But <clears throat> um, so within the, so with outside the firm, people were like, of course you should go to Goldman. Like it's Goldman, <clears throat> right? You know, the best reputation on the street. Within the firm at Rothschild, <clears throat> and by the way, Rothschild has <laughs> a storied history. I mean, we could spend a pot on on that. Um, <clears throat> uh, but you know, Rothschild people at Rothschild, you know, those in my class were like, "Yeah, you should probably do it." Those that were basically my bosses were obviously not happy about it because they went to the trouble of hiring me, and I'm jumping ship. But there was one guy, okay, <clears throat> and uh, and and he was by reputation one of the just sort of better folks at the firm, just like you know nicer person. I hadn't worked with him directly, but I had a conversation with him, <clears throat> and the advice he gave me was as follows. And there's a couple of gems in here with the passage of time, but the advice he gave me was look. There are a few companies in the world, in history, where if you go make your way at those companies, you know, the world of opportunity opens up to you, basically. And he said Goldman is, you know, Goldman now in the year, whatever it was, 2004, is one of those companies. And he cited other examples. <clears throat> he might have cited Microsoft, and I think he cited GE, which was really interesting, right? Because GE was this legendary story of corporate success, um, which had also gotten heavy into finance. Uh, that didn't turn out so well, <laughs> as we now know. But at the time, it looked really good. So anyway, so yeah, he was he, he basically, in, in so many words, told me like, you know, you've got a ticket to one of these firms, like, you know, obviously you should you should jump on that train. So, yeah, so that was an interesting conversation. And, you know, he was he was right. I mean, I made contacts and I learned I think I learned much more than I would have uh, had I stayed. How long were you there in the end? Yeah, so I only just finished my analyst program. So it was like I moved to after a year and change. So basically, I was at Goldman for like two years. Right. And then I and then I left to uh, work in uh, in private equity to try my hand in that in that woolly world which is in some ways not that different from you know from the rest of wall street uh a little bit different but not that different but what what drove you to to leave that world what was the what was the tipping so, point <clears throat> look i wish i could tell you that i foresaw the global financial crisis right like i wish i could tell you that it was all obviously a house of cards and and i just wanted to you know get out or that i could tell you that it was you know totally toxic and terrible and like you know only crazy people would want to work there the reality is much more nuanced i mean there were a lot of great people at goldman i learned a lot um you know the firm relatively speaking even to today has been much more successful than a lot of its peers 
and so, yeah, it's not like I was jumping out of this, you know, toxic ooze that was going to kill me <laughs> if I stayed in much longer. But I did look ahead of me and I didn't like what I saw in terms of how people lived, you know, what family life looked like, you know, for senior people, you know, just the, if you lived in the city, you know, that was tough with kids. So many lived outside the city, which means you're, you know, working all hours and then you're, you know, on a train more than an hour each direction. Uh, and man, it is a, it is a tough life. And to be honest, I couldn't, it was salesy enough. It was too salesy for me. I mean, the reality working as a senior, there's two realities as you get more senior. As you get more senior, you're constantly selling. You're constantly pitching. You're, you're, you're trying to ingratiate yourself with captains of industry, you know, basically C-suite executives, you know, so that they'll do the next deal with you because that's how you get paid. And I don't know, man. I just I just didn't have it in me from a from a sales perspective, from a from a boot licking perspective, to be honest with you. So that's one thing. And then the second thing you realize, I wrote about this in the book, is as you get very senior, the job becomes about much more about managing conflicts. It becomes much more about how do you squeeze every last possible dollar out of every possible deal that comes across your desk without breaking a rule or too many rules, you know, or basically endangering, uh, endangering the firm. And what's interesting about that dynamic is, number one, I, I want to say there's no bright lines, or maybe if there are bright lines, they sometimes get crossed. And we've seen that happen. You know, the, the most recent example was that one MDB scandal where Goldman did this bond deal, uh, you know, for this entity in Malaysia, which basically was government affiliated and they just stole all the money. <laughs> and, and there were signs, you know, there were signs that these characters were, were shady and the fee on the deal was so exorbitant, right? It's like your standard bond deal, your standard junk bond deal, you know, low quality bond deal gets when I was there, you know, two and three quarters to 3% fee. So whatever you, 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 you know, you raise a hundred million dollars, you get a few million bucks in fees call it 3% on the high end. I remember this one MDB deal. This came out, this news was came out a couple of years ago. The fee was like six or 7%. <laughs> and it was just so obvious in retrospect. It's like, oh, how, how and why are you able to charge six to 7% for this money? <laughs> and the answer is because you're dealing with, you know, crooks. So I don't know, man, it was, it was a combination of, it was a combination of, I didn't like what you know being a mid or senior level person looked like from a lifestyle perspective at this firm and um and yeah there was there was uh there was some aggressive uh aggressive conflict management let's say that was going on that made me uh that made me uncomfortable it can be a very toxic atmosphere we know that and there's um that's it's a big warning to to any of the younger listeners that are you know dragging themselves through economics degrees or whatever else that, uh, you know, that, be warned. It's not that um, gilded path to all of the riches that, that you think you might be uh, lining yourself up for. Um, and, and a lot of the job, 
just ain't that fun. Yeah. <laughs> I do think there's a small percentage. I actually met a small number of uh, guys that were just cut out for it. Right. Right. Guys who were, um, they were deal junkies. They were sales junkies. Um, they seemed like, you know, fish in water. Uh, but that, <laughs> I don't know what percentage of the population that is. It's not a high percentage. And, uh, yeah. So I guess it's one of those things where if you're cut out for it, good on you, but most of us aren't. <laughs> And you, you end up being that guy in the big short, right? That's uh, playing off the banks between the hedge funds. Uh, what was his name? Jared in the in the big short? I can't remember. Uh, the guy that goes to... Um, go ahead. That pitches, pitches yep. the uh, the CDS deals? Yes. Um, you're saying... Yeah, sorry. So who, who becomes that? That would be the kind of... that That's the kind of guy that's made for it, right? That's the kind of... Oh, right. Exactly. That's exactly. the kind of personality. Slick, right. Yeah. Slick uh, sales... Uh, oriented, tells a great story. Doesn't give a fuck. I mean, these yeah, exactly does not exactly does like exactly does not give a fuck. Well said. <laughs> the dangerous, the dangerous people to know and to get to know. Um, yeah, there's that. Oh man. Anyway, let's um, let's get to you finding Bitcoin because after Goldman, you you came back back to the the West Coast and you started working in your family business wealth management um company and that's when you found bitcoin yeah i found it you know i'm one of those three exposure guys right 2013 i was on vacation i was reading the economist listening to it in podcast and they had an article the economist had an article on it in 2013 and i was like oh that's i have no idea what they're talking about like totally went over my head and then 2016 i think wall street journal article actually on the um, the Dow hard fork of Ethereum. And I saw that article and I was like, no idea what they're talking about. And then, yeah, it was a friend of mine pinged me. His name is Arun Rao, very smart guy. And uh, he got he got it on my he got it on my radar. Um, I think he may have connected me with Ari Paul of all people, as I, as I recall, who was, who, you know, was head start or was launching a crypto fund. And I think that was when I was like, Oh, um, wait, there are guys launching hedge funds based on this asset class in quotation marks, asset class. Um, you know, that, that got my wall street antenna up because if you're a wall street, you know, guy, whatever, ex-banker. You know, I was, I guess, at, at the time, I, well, I had gone for private equity to a hedge fund, you know, to wealth management. But but one of the real golden tickets in the industry still at the time was launching a hedge fund, right? <laughs> if you can launch a hedge fund and raise money, you can make a lot of money in fees. And so that that got my attention. And that's when I started to, uh, you know, that, that, got the, uh, that got the greed meter, uh, that got the attention of the greed meter. Uh, and uh, that's when I started digging in. And I think I started doing significant work. Actually, I think I bought my first coin right after the uh, the Bcash hard fork. August 2nd of 2017, I want to say it was. Um, so obviously, I wish I'd been earlier. But um, but that's that's when I you know got into the wild, woolly world of crypto. And it probably took, it took at least a year, more like, well, I started writing the book 
what, 18, six, 15 months after that? So obviously by the time I was writing the book, I had realized that Bitcoin was the thing, right? <laughs> so yeah, somewhere between you know, looking at all the cryptos and starting writing on, on the book, my conviction about Bitcoin specifically had hardened. Yeah. And this is the point that I love about your story because you are a, a CFA. Um, do, do you want to tell listeners what that is? Yeah. So CFA uh, stands for Chartered Financial Analyst. Um, and it's an opt-in credential in the world of investment. And it's pretty serious business. It's, it's, it's no joke. It's three years of tests. So you have to, you know, on an annual basis, the fa fastest you can do it is, is in three years. And uh, there's also an employment requirement, but, but they're pretty difficult exams. When you run the statistics on, um, you know, what percent of people pass them, the percent of people that pass all the way through is like, I don't know, five or six percent. Um, so in other words, most people fail at least one level and they have to retake it. And many people fail, you know, multiple times and just never finish. I think the pass rate last year for the level one in exam was like 25%. Um, so yeah, it's just a tough set of exams and you have to study and you have to cram and you have to learn all this material. And it's, it's, it's mathematics. It's mathematically, you know, it's, it's relatively math intensive, although it's not certainly not all math. And it's everything from, you know, valuation models to portfolio management to statistics. sharp ratio. Exactly. Sharp <laughs> ratio, sharp ratio <laughs> to accounting. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of material. And so if you if you, it's it's common among portfolio managers, I mean, analysts as well. Um, but basically, if you're if you're managing money, if you're investing money, there's a good chance that you're gonna slog your way through the through the CFA program. Yeah. And there's obviously a reason for that. And the reason, as, as far as I'm concerned, is to weed out the the charlatans from those that are really 100% aligned with the ethics of managing other people's money and having their best interests at heart. Yeah, so that's an interesting perspective. And in fact, I didn't even mention the ethics section. There is an ethics section of the exam. And I believe actually that what you said is correct in the sense that if you self, if you get through the exams and you basically pass the requirements and you, and you call yourself a CFA holder, I think you do have to self-certify as a fiduciary. Um, which means, although don't quote me on that, which means that, yeah, you're supposed to put your client's interests ahead of your own, right? You're supposed to put your client's interests above and uh, serve them and not be conflicted in terms of, of interests. And so, yeah, I think that is a component of it. I suspect that a bigger component, yeah, is basically as a you know, as, as sort of a, I don't want to say a rating mechanism, but it's like anything else. It's like, okay, if you take a bunch of hard tests, then, then maybe hopefully, you know, something about, <laughs> about what you're doing. Um, but um, yeah, the, the, the ethical angle is there and they do have a, a significant ethics section on the test. Um, so yeah, that's a piece of it for sure. And is that what resonated with you when you found Bitcoin and you're managing other people's money? Oh man. So 
There was, I think there were several things. I mean, when you say, when you say, you know, the ethical aspect of Bitcoin, for me, there's a huge ethical aspect of Bitcoin and a, a Bitcoin, sorry, a world in which Bitcoin succeeds and reaches its potential is a much better world ethically. So there's that. However, if we're honest about, you know, how to pitch this to clients or how to help uh, clients understand this, that's a much harder argument, right? It's NGU technology, I would say, is more appealing to most who view it as, yeah, another investment, um, you know, another ticker across the screen, a thing with a price somewhere... <laughs> Somewhere at the intersection of those two things is the truth, obviously. And yeah, I think it's a mix. I think the, the ethical angle is important to me. It's less important to many of my clients. It is important to my clients, you know, that have a negative ethical view, right? Those handful that are like really focused on the energy consumption, you know, or still think it's a tool for criminals uh, primarily. Yeah, so it's a it's a mixed bag. It's there's some subtleties in there. But when you found it, and this is um, we've discussed this before, and you realized that this is the the asymmetrical bet, and you know, back to the sharp ratio, uh, you you know, the return versus risk. Um, yeah, there's no way in the world that you can not notify your clients about this and the best way for you to go about that in the most professional manner was to write a book about the damn thing yes i think so this is, is right i think this is a great great testament to you and your moral grounding i think it's a wonderful story well okay that's it. so i appreciate that and and yeah i i think that's the right that's the right angle i saw a huge investment opportunity. It was only later that I saw the ethical, you know, benefits of Bitcoin. But yes, to get clients to accept it as an investment, just to accept it as an investment, right? Or even just a speculation, you know, call it what you want. I had to convince them, I felt <laughs> that I knew something about it. Because as we know, and this is especially wind the clock, you know, wind the clock back a couple of years, the most people get their information about it still through the mainstream media, and the media coverage of it had had been atrocious. It's still terrible. <laughs> it's improved from atrocious to terrible. And so, yeah, you know, Bitcoin is scary. It's just lost. Remember, I started writing the book in January 2019, so it was like 3K, okay? It's gone from 20 to 3 or, or whatever, roughly, down 85%. And uh, so you got that going for you. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Andy, we're going to buy this thing that's down 85% that I keep reading is mainly for criminals and or, you know, stupid retail speculators? Uh, yeah. You gotta you gotta lay out the investment thesis. So for sure, writing a book on it that was well reasoned and readable for them was my way of showing 
I've done the due diligence, right? I've done the analysis and the work. Uh, and there's a place for it in the portfolio. And if you don't believe me, you better read it. <laughs> and after you read it, right, let's talk. So yes, that was that was the approach. And one of the one of the key reasons, although not the only reason that I wrote the book was, yeah, for my clients. And for the fiduciary duty on your part. Right, exactly. I mean, there is a duty of care and a duty of, you know, basically what that amounts to is buying something for your client, if you're a fiduciary, does require that you understand enough about it to make an assessment about the risk embedded in, uh, in investing in it. Yeah. I want to ask you now about the amount of crud that is still coming out, the FUD that still comes out from mainstream media. And we, we did a show yourself and John Vallis, where we were talking about the, um, the analyst reports that get uh, thrown out about Bitcoin. You've been one of these PowerPoint monkeys. You know what goes on behind the scenes. So what's a PowerPoint monkey doing writing about Bitcoin, probably pulling an all-nighter just to throw it out to get it on their angry boss's desk the next morning so he can then go and, you know, take that to his superior who can take it to his superior. This is the kind of bullshit that we're up against, right? It absolutely is. And it reminds me, so I was never, when I was at the bank, right? When I was at Goldman, and yeah, I think we talked about one of the reports that Goldman issued, which was shockingly off the mark, maybe not shockingly. Um, I was so I wasn't in the investment management research department, but in the investment bank, something similar happens, which is when you're valuing a company, because you're gonna basically you're gonna try to sell the company. So you're going to management and the board. You're saying, hey, we're gonna sell your company. Here's what we think it's worth. You do all this fancy analysis and you run a bunch of numbers and this is as an analyst or associate and you put together a slide deck presentation and then you take it to the senior guy, the managing director level guy, and he makes adjustments. So in other words, what you do is you try to get to the right answer in terms of like what the thing's actually worth, right? You do the work on the comps, you know, the comparables on the companies that are tra trading in the market. What are they worth for comparable companies? the transactions, deals that have happened, you know, what, what valuation levels have those been done at? You know, what does your just outright financial model say about the valuation based on the weighted average cost of capital and all this stuff? And so you get to the, what you think is the right answer. And then the senior guy who has to pitch it is like, yeah, no, change this, right? Emphasize this, you know, get to the quote unquote right answer that the management team wants to hear. <laughs> So yes, the right answer is what your client wants to hear, at least in the investment banking business in general. And so yeah, similar dynamic I think in the um, similar dynamic in the investment uh, management department. These guys know that they know that they stand to lose portions of their business if they get decentralized, you know, on the Bitcoin base layer, and. Yet they're conflicted because they can trade the thing and they can't offer it as a product to clients. So they can probably make some fees there. They don't like the what they see as the risk of stepping on the toes of, of governments because, you know, ultimately they are regulated entities. 
they don't want to be near anything that possibly could compete with the government in a way that would cause the government to curtail uh, the juicy business that they make, you know, extracting fees um, from companies and from the economy, all the while, by the way, with an effective government guarantee, you know, backstop so they can take risk, heads they win, you know, tails we lose. And um, yeah, that's that's the strange set of conflicting incentives that you're up against and the sausage that comes out the other side, I guess, is these weird and bad takes on Bitcoin. And I don't know. I don't know when it will end. How big, how big will Bitcoin have to be before? It's actually funny. I, I heard an interview, I think, with, uh, with uh, Anthony Scaramucci recently talking about Bitcoin. And I, th- and I don't remember it was Pomp or someone. And what he said was, the day that Goldman puts out an accurate and positive report on Bitcoin, right? That's my sell signal. Because <laughs> that means because that means that you know it's truly you know it's truly peaked. All the good news is is priced in, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was funny. Yeah, I don't take that view. By the way, I don't I don't like to sell Bitcoin. No. I, I I don't do it. Uh, you know, I only accumulate IDCA. But uh, absolutely, mate, absolutely. But you're in a you're in a uh, a situation at the moment where you're managing the money for your clients. You are trying to convince them that they need to buy and hold Bitcoin. They are obviously going to be showing some kind of pushback against that. And even if they were convinced by you or your book or some articles that they might have read, they're still just going to say to you, okay, Andy, buy me some Bitcoin. Now you cannot buy the Bitcoin and self custody for them. You can't teach them. Well, you can, but we know that they're, they're your clients for a reason. Yeah. I employ you to manage my money, Andy. You just buy me the fucking Bitcoin and that's all good. So that puts you in a conundrum. How do you do that for them? Yeah. And this is one of the this is one of the major problems for the established financial world and Bitcoin, which is what you said is basically right. And so the solutions for getting clients exposure to Bitcoin, they're all imperfect. You know, they all have hair in their own ways. Uh, and and so it's pros and cons and no we don't have the perfect solution, right? We don't have the ETF. The ETF would be the quote unquote perfect solution for client investment purposes, right? <laughs> Not for, you know, strengthening and decentralizing the network in the long run overall, but yeah, for clients. So that's number one. And then number two is there's very little upside to helping them custody their own coins, right? Because it's hard to get paid to do that. <laughs> and if they screw it up, you know, and they blame me, that's a that's a headache. So it is kind of a minefield. And, you know, I'm advising Swan on, you know, how to build a better product in that regard. There's a whole panoply of, of products out there. Um, you know, the easiest way is just buying the Bitcoin trust. Easiest, in quotation marks. Because although there's been sort of the stigma associated with it you know finally people are coming on side let's put it this way if you wind back the clock a couple years or even a year a lot of investment advisors 
wealth managers would have said, like my compliance department, you know, forbids me from buying the Bitcoin trust for whatever reason. Now we just saw JP Morgan, I think, you know, approve it, you know, approve the grayscale products for, for clients. So it's much more mainstream now, number one. And number two, it trades as a discount to the net asset value, whereas it used to trade at a premium. So the fees are still high, very high, but it is liquid. You can buy it in a, you know, in a brokerage account, Schwab account or whatnot, and you can buy it at a discount to net asset value. And overall, that's not such a bad prospect. Then you've got various other products. Many of them are limited partnerships, you know, hedge fund type structures. Those are an option. Um, it's more work because you got to do a subscription document and you got to do, you know, K extra KYC basically. Um, and you got to move money around, you know, send wires. So there's that, you know, there's advising clients on just, you know, whatever, acute, you know, DCAing with Swan or, you know, buying on XYZ, you know, other exchange that, you know, comes with the risk of if they get it wrong or if they somehow, you know, lose access to their account or they move funds in a way they shouldn't. There's actually some solutions to that. I mean, there are advisors, a handful out there, I think, that basically do either collaborative custody or basically, you know, do manage uh, manage the keys. Um, I know Fireblocks has a product that's involved in that. They just, I think, did a big funding round recently, like multi-billion dollar valuation, if I want to, if I'm remembering. Um so yeah, dude, I mean it's it's just a it's just a mixed bag and it's a moving target and you know it's different things for different clients. But if I was to say like, you know, if there's some advisor, you know, some wealth manager listening right now and he wants the easiest, you know, the easiest uh, he wants to press the the easy button so to speak, it's probably the Bitcoin trust right now. Um I am open to, and I have educated a precious few of my clients, by the way, that tend to be younger. The ones that are interested who are like, you know, I want to take custody or I want to, you know, I want to hold my keys. Great. You know, I, I tell them about, you know, some of the options they have, you know, I tell them about, you know, obviously 2FA for exchange accounts, but I talk to them about hardware wallets. You know, we've been talking about multi-sig. I mean, there's... Uh, as far as a client wants to go down the security rabbit hole, I'm willing to go with them, you know, at least to the, to the limits of my knowledge. Um, uh, but let's be honest. It's, it's very few that are interested in that. I think that I, I think there's gotta be advisors out there who fear Bitcoin, at least with respect to clients, because either uh, they think, Oh, the client's just going to do it away from me which they have had to do because if you look at the, you know, the whole U S as an example, or Europe too, you know, the percent of advisors whose compliance departments have approved that they talk to their clients, even talk to their clients about Bitcoin was minuscule until very recently. So that is changing, but if you can't even talk about it with your client, you know, you assume that they're going to do it away from you, which is dollars, that leave your little fee-paying system and 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 move out, or you look at it as a relatively small opportunity anyway, because you're like, oh, you know, what what difference is it going to make? If my compliance department only lets me take a one percent position. Like, this seems like a lot of work 
just to do, you know, just to get off zero. I think that's changing. You know, I, part of the, part of my reason that I have conversations is to help advisors get up the curve and I get inbound requests. I mean, I've gotten um, guys, you know, ask me questions about that and I've, you know, given them ideas and, and advice. I have to be a little careful because of all the pros and cons. And like I said, the hair on these different solutions, but it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of potential solutions. They're getting better. It's a moving target. And the good news is it'll keep, uh, it'll keep getting better. And Bitcoin is, Bitcoin is winning. Bitcoin, you know, is a good investment, has been a good investment, is likely to be a good investment. And so as it gets bigger, it just becomes unignorable. Advisors are getting up the curve. It takes time. Uh, unfortunately, I would say many are getting distracted by other digital assets of dubious quality. That'll be a constant battle for possibly eternity. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> for a long time. But uh, yeah, that's how I look at it. What do you tell people about MicroStrategy? Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, well, obviously, I, I crow about uh, how I predicted they'd uh, issue bonds to buy Bitcoin. No, um, what do I tell them about MicroStrategy? Great call, I, man. It was a I, great I, yeah, fucking call. Yeah, it helps, helps to be lucky. Uh, <laughs> helps to be lucky. Um, I think that Michael Saylor is, I think it was probably Corey who said this, you know, the best pitch man he's ever seen or the best salesman he's ever seen ever in any field, right? And he's working for Bitcoin. So uh, he's on team Bitcoin and he's an amazing salesman. MicroStrategy, I do hold it up as an example of, oh, you know, here's a really intelligent, experienced, and by the way, I'm talking about relevant experience, right? This is a guy who wrote the mobile wave in 2012, which I rec highly recommend for people. It made specific predictions, many of which have already come true in, in the last eight or nine years. And he's a guy that understands software. He obviously understands valuable networks or let's say assets that are based on network effects because he has a history of investing in domain names. So like the guy has the right experience and intelligence to understand this thing. And obviously he's bet his company on it. So, you know, what is what does he know? What does he understand that others don't? And I also obviously use it as an example of okay, you know, corporate treasuries will will put Bitcoin on their balance sheet. Now the reality of that is what he's done is a little different than you know the some corporate treasurer you know putting a couple percent of I put a, a couple percent of Bitcoin next to the <laughs> a couple percent of euros and yen you know because they're doing business in in foreign markets and they have to you know own the FX basically to uh, to uh, maintain their businesses something you you know well from uh, from your experience um, so those are the things I those are the things I talk about with MicroStrategy. To most people, I don't go into, I don't really go into the, oh, this is a, an interesting way to apply leverage to Bitcoin and sort of generate uh, extra value or alpha that way. For most people, that's, I don't know, that's kind of a bridge too far, but that, 
you know, as you, as you understand, as you and I know, that's, uh, you know, that's the game he's playing is multi-year maturity debt, uh, and equity, uh, you know, basically to, uh, add leverage and capture upside in Bitcoin. And it's a, it's a brilliant strategy. It's a great strategy. It's, it's one of the few ways that Bitcoin should be levered, which as you know, is another, uh, you know, a hobby horse of mine is reminding people that most forms available to them for levering Bitcoin are bad ideas. <laughs> He's got the one, one of the few good ways to do it. Uh, most of the other ways are a good way to, uh, to get wrecked. He's, but yeah, I mean, the reason he has the good way to do it is because he's got 31, 32 years behind himself of managing and founding, founding, then managing and still owning something like 70% of that company, right? Don't play that game if you're not that guy, because that game's not for you. Just stack DCA, hodl, cold storage, wallet, just play it safe. And that's like, these these opportunities will come, you know, I've had uh, the Leiden guys on um, and Preston's done a deep dive on all of the um, other lending firms. Yeah. Just wait, man. Just, you know, let it play out. And, uh, don't start gambling. Can I tell you something, Princey? I want to tell you about how I learned the hard way mm -hmm. about leverage. Mm -hmm. Okay. And this will be near and dear to your heart because of your background, because it was in the FX markets. Mm -hmm. So I learned the hard way about leverage two times. I speculated in the Euro to US dollar market in probably 2014 or 15. And I had a thesis at the time that the Euro was gonna lose value versus the dollar. And I wanted to be long USD short euro and i <laughs> the as you know from experience one of the most levered markets or one of the uh, markets we can get the most leverage is fx and so i was using futures and some options and i had a big position on on euros and i got uh i got smoked i got wrecked there was a big move on a single day i can't remember the event but it was like a you know, it was like, uh, what's the, when it moves like two percentage points or it's like, you know, two euros per mm -hmm. or, or two cents per dollar. Well, like, you know, it's two, I guess there was a two cent move basically overnight, which is, or maybe it was a three cent move. You know, it was like a 3% move, which is big in FX. And I had a big position on it. anyway. Suffice to say I got liquidated. Okay. Right. And I believed in my thesis. And so I went to the bank and I did have a home equity line. I had a HELOC on and I drew it, you know, I, I took out all the money, wired the money to my brokerage account and I put the position back on and thank God I ended up being right, but I could have been wrong. And I was wrong. I was painfully wrong and underwater and liquidated for a period of whatever it took to move the money a couple of days there. And that was scary and painful. And but it wasn't quite painful enough to <laughs> keep me from doing it again. Uh, and the second time I did it was I had a position on, which I think was short. I'm trying to remember. It was short yen. 
And it was the night I had it on the night of the 2016 election, Donald Trump election, mm. which was a surprise outcome in which every it was basically a panic move. It was a short term panic move in risk markets. And then it reversed. Right. Because people are like, oh, my God, you know, crazy man, Donald Trump is is president. This is, you know, 2016. And so, yeah, markets risk sold off the yen rallied. You know, because because the yen, as you know, is a safe haven. Generally speaking, it trades that way. And uh, yeah, I got liquidated overnight, and it was it reversed itself within like hours. But I had just enough exposure on, you know, that I that I dipped below the margin requirement, and um, and so that was a personal experience of using margin on currency or money, which is really no different than margining Bitcoin. And you can be right. In both cases, both those trades, I was right, uh, but lost money <laughs> because I got liquidated. Because of the leverage. Because of the leverage. So let it be a lesson. You know, I've ha I had those two personal experiences, which obviously you know scarred me, and um, I see it happening to plebs out there. I see them lose or using leverage in a way where they can get liquidated uh, with a margin call, and it just makes me. Um, it makes me a little bit sad that some percentage of those plebs will have the right thesis and mm -hmm. yet still uh, get taken out to the woodshed. So just be careful out there, people. Uh, mate, you know, when was this? 2017, 2018? Uh, you know, I'd been in foreign exchange uh, on the brokerage side for, for 18 years, and uh, I'd been out of the game by that point for about four or five. My ex-boss calls me up. We do a couple of Skype calls. Yeah, Skype calls back then. Mad how we don't even say that word anymore. Um, and he's like, he's been in FX for 30 years. He's like, Princey, I've, I've, I've broken it. Look at this. I've been doing this for the last two years. And he was still working 10, 11 hours a day in foreign exchange and doing everything um, after, you know, five or six hours after work, a couple of hours before work. Couldn't have been a more tuned in guy to what was going on in the foreign exchange markets. He's like, I've been managing money for some close friends and family. Are you interested? So yeah, I don't know why I ever did it, but you know the story, a good chunk of change, completely down the toilet, gone because yeah. of leverage. And because there was some kind of decision on sterling euro or sterling dollar going throughout the, the Brexit bullshit, you know, you cannot control this kind of shit. You just can't. So if you're leveraged, doesn't matter if you're right in a year or two, because you're gone, you're taken out. Whoever that brokerage is that has extended you that leverage is going to liquidate your position very, very quickly at um, ridiculous market rates as well. And you're out of there, gone. Yeah. Everything you had. It's brutal. It's brutal. And you don't even have to be right what kills me, uh, yeah, what kills me about those two trades for me is they went in my direction like they were the right call within, I don't know, days. Like literally within days, they went in the right direction. And uh, but it didn't matter. <laughs> so message you only to have the to plebs. Be, yeah, you only have to be wrong for just long enough for, for one second to to get liquidated. And 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 to your point about at at what price, right? Is mm. yeah, you have you no know, idea. You have no idea what they're what they're going to sell your position. This is at, why we see. This is why we see these these such um, 
volatile moves in in Bitcoin uh, because yeah. as soon as people start getting liquidated and shorted out, um, whether it's to the downside or whether it's to the upside, it doesn't matter. That exchange or that service that you are using, they are going to scramble over each other to get out of their leveraged positions that they've extended to you as quick as possible at your cost, not theirs. They're not going to give a fuck about the market price that they are given. They're going to just say sell or buy and that's it. You're gone. So if you're shortly, if you're short, this is what we saw in the last three or four days, right? This like spike to the upside, like because too many people were short the Bitcoin on leverage because they thought it was going lower. So please just stop anyone that's listening to this. Just, just don't do it. Just stack. Amen, brother. Couldn't have said it better myself. All right, Andy. I think we've we've probably come towards the end of this, and it's uh, almost two hours long. I hope people stick around. I hope that this has been entertaining enough. I've loved talking talking to you as always. <clears throat> but you know, I've got to ask the final question. You, you've you've been through this one two or three times already. But if you had <laughs> one orange pill left to give to someone, who would you give it to, and why? Oh man, I didn't know we were gonna we were gonna do the the orange pill question again. Oh man, I really liked your re- somebody recently. Maybe it was Obi on your show. You know, said he'd just give it to the you know to some random pleb. You know, because um, you know who cares about uh, who cares about the big shots? Um, yeah, I think that. Um, I think I would probably give it to someone somewhere in the ESG and especially the environmental movement, right? Like I don't know who's the who's the who's the maybe Greta, uh, who knows somebody somebody who's you know maybe I'd pick Elizabeth Warren. Maybe right now, maybe at this moment in time, Liz Warren is the one who needs the orange pill. Um, I think oh, I'll go with that. I tweeted her today. God damn, she's just so annoying. I'm, I'm trying to not let I'm trying to not let an old lady trigger me. Um, but yeah, I tweeted her today because what, what did she? What was the the quote like? Bitcoin or crypto? She used the word crypto, of course. Is just full of shadowy, um, cypher super coders, super coders, shadowy super coders. Uh, I was like, are you really saying this kind of shit? Um, you know, reason being, I'll, I'll uh, hang on. Here we go. Uh, give me a second. Right, yes. I'm here to help Elizabeth Warren understand that the existing banking system is full of shadowy insider traders, lobbyists, criminals, and I point out again, insider traders, because it's literally called the shadow banking system. And then... <laughs> <laughs> Included the link to Wikipedia for the shadow banking system. There's your shady goings Classic. on right there. Classic. And the complete opposite <laughs> is the Bitcoin open source network where we all agree on the consensus rules and, you know, don't trust verify. It, it, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable that people are still coming out with this narrative. And then today, HSBC another money laundering scandal did you see that no i didn't see the news oh man all right before we before we turn it off for the listeners uh let's see it was um 
I was tagged in a tweet earlier on. Yeah, HSBC faces questions over disclosure of alleged money laundering. Really? That's just the, well, again, like you know, it's <laughs> for the fiftieth time. Was it HSBC? I had this in the book. Was it HSBC that designed the teller, the bank teller mm -hmm. windows, a specific yes. size, so yes. that they could feed the feed the suitcases of cash to launder money for the Mexican drug cartels? I think that was HSBC. Can I just say one thing before we before we end it? Yep. Which is, I watched, I actually watched the recent Senate hearings. Okay. It was like an hour and a half. Warren was there, obviously, um, and some other characters. Um, and, uh, you know, they took testimony from a few different people. Um, and one of the conclusions I drew from that hearing was a lot of the criticism, quote unquote, criticism, including from Warren, is right when you're talking about quote unquote crypto. In other words, you know, like one of the one of the beefs against quote unquote crypto is, you know, these are non-decentralized products or projects masquerading as centralized pro projects. And I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much right about everything other than Bitcoin, <laughs> right? And so, and I'm sure, you know, the like, whatever, the anonymity and the, you know, the shady, you know, whatever, shady super coders. Yes, there are many, you know, crappy crypto projects where that's exactly right. And, um, you know, or just anonymity, you know, ability, whatever, to use it for money laundering or crime. And it's like, yeah, there are some crypto projects that are well designed for that. Again, not Bitcoin. And so... Yeah, they're still they're still looking at the whole space. I'm saying they in quotation marks, you know, mm -hmm. those politicians, as a monolith, as sort of this uniform, I don't know, this uniform cesspool of stuff they don't understand that does stuff that makes them uncomfortable. Whereas applying those criticisms, you know, one by one to Bitcoin, you just get a very different answer than than to most of the space. So I actually took some, I came out after listening to the hearings and watching them, I came out thinking, yeah, actually for many of the you know crappy projects in the sector, for many of the scams, what they're saying is totally right. <laughs> and so part of our challenge, you know, as, as Bitcoiners, people who are interested in Bitcoin and believe in Bitcoin and want to support it is educating and, and separating you know, much of that nonsense and the and the morass basically from this thing, which is Bitcoin, which is so far superior and actually meets many of their requirements or, you know, doesn't many of the concerns or criticisms that they mouth off about really don't actually apply to Bitcoin. We got our work cut out ahead of us, Andy, for sure. Gonna it's all slog. about going to be a it, slog. It's and I'm really looking forward to your next book. So you know, <laughs> well, I look forward to uh, many more, <laughs> many more of your podcasts, man. You're you're uh, you are relentless. Uh, you keep putting out great content across the whole range of uh, you know plebs to uh, plebs to superstars and everything in between and. And I, I just enjoy listening and I enjoy talking with you, man. Cool. And I really look forward to meeting you one day, brother, and, uh, and having a beer and a barbecue. Uh, let's, let's fingers crossed. Um, 
we can get that done next year, if uh, if not sooner. Let's do it. All right, brother. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you soon. Likewise. Hey, guys. Thank you for sticking around. And thank you again, Andy, for taking the time to come on for that rip. Always such a great fun time with you hanging out talking old markets uh, learning as much about you now as i think uh, we'll ever know uh, love the fact that you were willing to share those stories talking about your old college days walking onto the road crew <laughs> love it mate love it uh, and i really look forward to that that time that we do get to share an actual beer in real life together and i'm sure that is true for many of the plebs out there that have uh, sparked these friendships over the last year and a half and haven't actually got to meet each other yet so fingers crossed that we will be able to start doing that again soon thanks brother take care and thank you everybody for listening and for rating reviewing subscribing whatever it is that you do to support the show i really appreciate it go share this one with a friend let's keep pushing the narrative of bitcoin to as many people as we possibly can make sure you're using the show sponsors if you're not already in the UK, stack with coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten. Go use their app. They are driving their prices of commission down to zero. Get on board. Relay, R-E-L-A-I dot C-H forward slash bitten across Europe. And of course, across the pond, swanbitcoin.com forward slash bitten. That gets you a free 10 bucks to start your stack. Then you shift crypto.ch forward slash bitten. Get yourself the Bitbox 02 Bitcoin only hardware wallet and stack safe catch you on the next show guys